The Cultural Enterprises podcast is part of our online academy. Structured courses and learning resources created by industry experts, which encourage flexible learning. So you can watch at your own pace, in your own time, on multiple devices, in a location to suit you. To see how we can help you and your team, please visit culturalenterprises.org.uk forward slash academy. Hello and welcome to the fourth episode of Series 2 of the Cultural Enterprises podcast. I'm Gabriella Gandolfini, and in each episode I'll be talking to a top leader in the arts world. Find out how they got to where they are, what inspires them, and what advice they have for the next generation of leaders. And when it comes to top leaders in the arts world, I hope that you will be as thrilled as I am to be hearing from today's guest, Dr. Darren Henley OBE. Darren is the Chief Executive of Arts Council England, also a member of the Creative Industries Council. And Darren was appointed OBE in 2013 for his services to music. He's also an author, having written several books about the arts and classical music. It is a great privilege to have with us today, Darren. Welcome. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. So Arts Council England believes and invests in artists, arts organisations, museums, libraries across the country to make art accessible for everyone. You are the chief executive, a role you've been doing for five years. And I think most of our listeners know what Arts Council England is and we know who you are. But we don't know what a typical day in the office looks like. Well, one of the things that I've always believed in is that uh, I didn't want to sit behind a desk in London all day doing this job. I wanted to get out uh, up and down the country, uh, meeting people, seeing the great work that happens in museums, in libraries, uh, in arts organisations, meeting the artists and the creative people who make that work happen. Uh, to give you an example, so in my first 18 months I was in the organisation, I went to 157 different villages, towns and cities across the country. So I really, really want to get out there, meet people and see things. And one of the reasons for that is because I believe that I can only do my job authentically uh, if I really have that first-hand knowledge and that understanding. So I spend a lot of time doing that. About So on an average working week, I spend about half of my time uh, outside of London. Uh, there are a lot of meetings, so obviously we have a, a set of statutory functions. Um, I am the, 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 the accountable officer for the government and national lottery money that goes into uh, the Arts Council that we then give out to other people. So there are a lot of things around some rules and regulations around that. And obviously I have a role managing our team of 500 odd people in our nine offices uh, around the country. I spend a lot of time talking to governments, whether that be ministers or officials at DCMS or other government departments, uh, and also thinking about the future and wondering what uh, we will do and, and planning uh, the future of, uh, uh, with a really brilliant uh, team of, of colleagues right across the Arts Council who care so passionately uh, about our cultural life in this country. I always ask our guests what they studied at university and what led them down their path. But you studied lots of things, um, politics, history of art, management, uh, applied neuroscience. You're also a coach. There's just so much learning you've done in your years. Tell us about how it always started for you as a young person, making those education choices. Well, I always wanted to work in radio when I was uh, much, much younger. And uh, I went to the University of Hull and did a degree in politics. And actually, although you're absolutely right in what you say, that was at the time, uh, the end of my sort of academic life uh, at, at that point. Uh, and I went and became uh, a radio journalist. And uh, even while I was at university, I was doing that. I used to travel down 
uh, from Hull and I managed to wangle myself a, a, a job as a, as a journalist and newsreader at Classic FM which was then a brand new radio station back in 1992 and I used to read the news on Sunday afternoons and evenings, sleep on the then chief executive's sofa in his office although he never knew that uh, <laughs> and at five o'clock in the morning get back up, go to King's Cross and get back on the train uh, to Hull and become a student for the rest of the week. So I was very lucky then that uh, at the end of the time uh, I was at university, I got a job straight away at Classic FM and worked there full time. So I did a, a lot of my life was then doing that. And uh, it's only quite latterly I've come back to doing some more studying. So uh, I, I saw sort of a midlife crisis, you know, I decided that I was going to go and learn some stuff. Uh, and I did some other degrees and some more learning then. And uh, I've become very interested in areas like coaching and also areas like positive psychology uh, and what that can do. I mean, I believe quite passionately that in the job I do, in the world we work in, uh, wouldn't it be amazing if all of our decisions, uh, all the decisions that public policy in this country were about, were about making people's lives better, helping people to live happier lives. Is that being our, our first and key thing, uh, I think would be really amazing. And there are lots of parts of public policy, you know, if you commute in to the office in the morning on, on busy trains, wherever you are in the country, you might think to yourself, uh, I'm not sure the people making these decisions are about making my life happier. So I'm just wondering about all those sorts of areas. And I think there is so much that we can do within the cultural sector, within working with artists and arts organisations and museums and libraries that are about improving people's lives. Uh, and that's something that's been very central to, to Let's Create, which is our new uh, 10 year strategy and will be uh, something we live by as we go towards 2030 with all of our investment decisions. So you mentioned that the very first thing you studied was politics. What led you down that path to study politics at that point? I always wanted to be a journalist and I, I really found politics very interesting, although I didn't ever want to be a politician and I've never belonged to a political party or any of those sorts of things. So I just found that the, the, the way it worked was, was, was very intriguing, very interesting. Uh, and it's, you know, it's still interesting now. And, uh, you know, I, I, I get to work with politicians uh, and with people uh, in public policy all the time, day in, day out. And so I find what they do and how they operate and the decisions that they make uh, absolutely fascinating. And back then, did you ever imagine that you'd be doing what you do today? No, not at all. And I think, you know, until relatively recently, I've been doing this job, uh, you know, five years now. And I think if you'd even asked me six or seven years ago, I wouldn't have imagined doing this. I had a job uh, in, the, in the commercial media sector. I'd never worked in the public sector. I'd never worked for an arts organization at that time. So all of my experience, I was at Classic FM for 23 years in total. Uh, all my experience was, was centered around working in, in commercial radio and in our record labels, our book publishing, our live concert division, but it was around a, a commercial brand. So all of these things that you've studied along the years, do they come together to inform the person that you are today? I think you hope so. I think everybody is probably the sum of all the things they've taken in at different times. And uh, I suppose the, the interesting question is the extent to which you craft your journey because of what you've done, or, or the extent to which because of what you've done, your journey is crafted for you. Uh, and I suspect it's probably a mixture of the two. So you have a very academic trajectory, and one could say that it's absolutely needed for a career such as yours. But in general, and maybe if we talk about arts management, there are alternatives to form education, such as apprenticeships. 
What are your views in general for those wanting to succeed in our industry today, but looking for alternatives to formal education? I don't think there is any one route. I think, as you say, there's a whole range of different things in different ways. I think it's always dangerous with any, it could be arts management, it could be anywhere where we say everybody must have a certain background and everybody must have had a certain journey, because I think uh, that becomes quite narrowing in terms of a focus of, of, of a sector as a whole. So I'm very, very keen and very interested in how we have different pathways for different people with different life experiences. Uh, and I think they come together. It creates a much richer tapestry uh, of people in an organisation or in a sector. So uh, I'm really keen on some of the things uh, that we're seeing now with apprenticeships. And uh, I'm also really, really keen to make sure that the organisations we work with are reaching out to people who may be atypical of the sort of person in the past who's not taken their, their, their world as a, as a career pathway. I think, uh, you know, I am concerned to make sure that we have real diversity uh, across the arts and culture sector, and whether that be around uh, different ethnicities, people with disabilities, but also people from maybe tougher socioeconomic backgrounds who may find it hard to get into our sector because traditionally there's been, it's who you know, not what you know sometimes. And also uh, there have been a lot of routes where at the start, you've got to be able to afford to do things for free, maybe for quite a period of time. That's really unfair if you can't even afford the bus fare to get across town to go and do that work experience. So I think we've got to continuously challenge ourselves on that to make sure that we aren't just talking to a very small bubble and we are reaching out as far as we possibly can across the country in terms of audiences, but also in terms of our workforce as well. So if you just go back a little bit, you mentioned starting your career as a radio journalist. And it's very easy for anyone to look at someone successful in their career. And as you mentioned, to forget that just like the rest of us, they have to start somewhere. Everyone needs to start somewhere. Tell us about the beginnings of your career and perhaps the, the struggles that you've had getting started. Well, I've been really lucky, but um, so I, I wouldn't want to characterise it too much as, as struggles. I uh, started off making the tea uh, in the local radio station in Kent and I basically loved it, absolutely loved it and I hung about there and I did whatever they needed me to do uh, and it was great. I, did, I was always, yes, I would do anything. I was 16 when I started doing that so I used to work through school holidays you know, while I was doing my A-levels. For me it's always been uh, I think in commercial radio at that time, particularly, there was always someone else. If you didn't do, say, put your hand up and say, yes, I'll do it. There was always someone else who would say, yeah, I'll, I'll go and do it. Don't worry. So, you know, it was, and, and I just thought, well, I'll take every opportunity. And I loved doing it. I've always been very, very lucky in the jobs I've done, but I absolutely love doing them. I love doing the job I do uh, at the Arts Council now. It's not to say it's always easy or there aren't moments where it's challenging, but I love doing it. I love working with the people. I have a sense of huge satisfaction in what we as an organisation uh, achieve in terms of, of actually changing people's lives. I think we, we, we are such a, 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 an amazing, caring organisation in terms of uh, how we look to, to work with people and how we, you know, the decisions that my colleagues across the Arts Council take day in, day out, but the care and attention to spending public money, whether it's been from the government or from the National Lottery, and making the right decision has been absolutely central to, to everything that they do and what they believe. And I, I think that makes it a very, very special place to work. So I'm very lucky. So I, I would argue that I, I just got lucky lots of times and I've enjoyed what I've done. I, I, and, I, and I do feel for people who, who do jobs who they don't enjoy. I mean, I, I, and it's hard. As, and the older you get, I know the harder that becomes because you're tied into various responsibilities and things like that. But I, I think if I talk to someone at the start of their career, it's, um, you know, do 
try as much as you can. If you don't like doing something, that's okay. But at least you tried it and you learned it. And someone gave me a piece of advice, which I always thought was really interesting at the start of my career, which was, you know, whatever you can do and whatever experience you can get in your 20s, uh, it, when, when you haven't got all the other things and all the other worries uh, in the world, you should do as much as you can, bank as much as you can, have as much as experience. And by bank, I don't mean financially, I mean bank it in, in terms of experience. Uh, and then that will stand you in enormous stead in your 30s onwards when your life stages are starting to change. You worked at Global Radio for over 20 years. And in that time, a shift happened from programming, editing, as you mentioned, saying yes to everything and making a tea, to all of a sudden, maybe perhaps not all of a sudden, becoming a management director. And from there on, you continued on the executive ladder up to where you are today. When did that happen, the management career, the executive career? When did you know that there was the path for you? You're never too important to make the tea, so I think that's still quite important. I suppose it's, it's, you start to think about what am I better at doing and what am I less good, good at doing. And sort of probably when you're, you know, want, want to work in radio, you probably imagine yourself at the very start saying, well, I present the Radio 1 breakfast show or the Radio 2 breakfast show or something like that, I'd be a, a superstar. Uh, and then you think actually there's lots of other people out there who are a lot better at that than me. So I made that decision quite early on. I did news reading. I was adequate, but I was never brilliant. There were lots of other people who were much better at it than me. So I, I became more a producer, more in the background, and I found that I was better at that. And, and I became a, a manager at a very young age, to be honest, really in my mid-twenties. And, and I just seemed to be okay at doing that and, and got promoted and, and, and I enjoyed doing it. And, and I, I think it's knowing what your strengths and weaknesses are. Mine were not being a great performer or, or, or and I didn't particularly enjoy that side of things as well so uh, I, I like uh, I like working with people uh, I like thinking about things I like working on strategies I, I, I like helping other people in our team to, to get the, the, the most uh, of, what, of what their skills are what their strengths are so all of those sorts of things come together uh, and work very well so I suppose again I, I got lucky uh, because I had people who uh, believed in me and, and appointed me and took a bit of a gamble on me quite a young age, I was, I was unproven time and time again, uh, and with people back to me. And I think, you know, I hope that's something that I can do now when I'm in a position to, to, to make some of those decisions as well, because I think great organisations in the end are collections of great people. And those great people are each individuals and we need to believe in and back and nurture uh, individuals. And that will make our collective organisations stronger and better and more effective. Do you remember how it felt going to your very first, very senior meeting and realizing, oh my God, I'm one of them now? Well, I don't know. I don't know. Because I, 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 I would have always been, at the very start, I would have probably been the youngest person in the room. And I was very shy. And, uh, you know, so it was quite an effort. So I, I think you're always in a learning phase. So I think every meeting you go to, every time you meet someone, you're, you're, you're learning stuff, you're finding new things out about them, about an organization, about yourself. Uh, and uh, I'm quite interested in people, so I think that helps a lot. And, and you know, some of the, the thinking, the learning I'm doing at the moment around positive psychology I, I, and, and around coaching, that's born out of because I'm really interested in, in people and about how you can bring the best out of people and how they can bring the best out of themselves as well. So you just told us that an organisation is a collection of great people. And I've heard this from people I've worked with across different organizations that for a normal person, even a fairly experienced manager, 
when they have to talk to the managing director or the COO, or even worse, when they have to do a work presentation for them, they freeze, they lose their confidence, they feel inadequate. And I think you just said, it's all about the great people coming together. And it would be really helpful for our listeners to hear from someone in your position that they shouldn't be frightened of speaking to someone very senior or perhaps some tips on how they can cope with it better because our industry relies on the talents of everyone. Well, I think in some ways it's up to the senior person to set the running in this and to make it clear in each instance that that is the case. I mean, you can have bosses who are very, very approachable and you can have bosses who are very unapproachable. I would hope that I sit in the, in the former camp and, you know, for me it's very important to have meaningful relationships with everybody as much as I can across across the Arts Council. You know, clearly there's 500 people and we're in nine different offices, so I'm not going to see them all every day. But it's really important that uh, they feel absolutely able to be able to, to drop me a note or, or pick up the phone or uh, whatever, and uh, or even just to stop me in the corridor when I'm walking past them in the office. Uh, and I think one of those things is about being visible and, and, and about being approachable. And that, that for me, is the way I, I try to, to do what I do. And other people, that may not work for them, but it, it works for me. So on that, could you tell us a little bit more about your leadership style or your leadership strategy? What else do you do that works for you when it comes to leading your teams? It is all about people. And it's, it, it, actually, it's all about them. It's not about me. And I think that's, uh, that's the, the, uh, the really important thing, is that um, you know, we have a team of really amazing people across the Arts Council who work incredibly hard uh, they're very diligent they've got a lot of expertise and wisdom over a long period of time they're experienced in what they do uh, they bring with them a, a wealth of different backgrounds that comes into the arts council there's you know you were mentioning earlier about roots in and i would say there is no one routine it's fascinating what uh, what many of them have done before and again what some of them continue to do you know many of them have some sort of artistic practice or creative practice uh, on the side that they do that's nothing to do with work and uh, they just do it uh, and in many cases they do it on a completely voluntary basis but it's just part of who they are uh, as individuals and uh, you know that, that that focus on creativity although we'll always be described as being a bureaucracy because we are because we we, we give out public money and we have to do it with a legal framework around it and a set of uh, very clear responsibilities which is absolutely right we also though are a development agency so we're also there to to help people and to think and to enable people uh, to be as creative as they possibly can externally and that's uh, that's really important So let's talk about Arts Council England. Could you let us into your world for a few minutes and share with us an insight, perhaps, into one of the most interesting conversations you've been part of? It was a very long conversation, and we had a very long conversation when we were developing our new strategy. We had that conversation with lots of people, you know, 5,000 people all up and down the country in one way or another. And I think that was very, very important for me, so that we talked to people who were in our world, so artists and people who are running arts organizations or or museums or libraries but also we talk to the audience out there i'm very it's very important that we we do all of this actually for an audience of some sort whether they be visitors to a gallery or people going to, to a concert uh, or people who are, are going to the theater or are sort of participants themselves out there and, and, and making some art uh, reading books writing books all of those sorts of things uh, doing things on a, on a, on a local voluntary uh, basis as well. We talked to all of those. Some of them we had an existing relationship with and some of them we had no relationship with. But we, as investors of public money, we need to have a relationship with that. 
So we had a really, really interesting conversation. Out of that conversation, we ended up writing Let's Create, which is, our, as I say, is our new 10-year uh, strategy. And that very much is a distillation of what people told us. And we tested lots of things over a sort of year, 18-month period with people, playing back what they'd said to us, testing it, refining it, getting it to a good place. And uh, I think what's exciting there is there's a real shift in that document is to understanding the role that we have as an arts council that helps to recognise everybody in this country can be creative people and to, to recognise the, the validity of their creativity, but also making sure that everybody in this country should be able to access um, the very highest quality professional work close to where they live as well. And that's really, really important. So uh, they, they, they shouldn't be disadvantaged by geography or background or education. Uh, it should be there. We're there for absolutely everybody to develop arts and culture in this country. Briefly, before we move on, I would love to ask you also about your writing, because you have several published books in arts and music. Did you start writing as a hobby or was it part of a wider career strategy? I obviously did some radio journalism and, and so I, I used to write a lot for that. And that radio journalism is quite a good discipline because if you think about it, even though you are only writing maybe a three-minute news bulletin, five-minute news bulletin every hour, you are actually writing a new news bulletin every hour. So you write fast and you have to write to, to, to time and you actually write very concisely as well and for spoken word, all of which is slightly different. Um, when I was at Classic FM, we wanted to do more book publishing and we had a very clear editorial voice if you like in classic fm we knew the classical music that worked for our audiences we did a lot of a lot of market research a lot of the all the decisions we made were based on talking and testing with audiences and it was a very audience driven radio station and i think the classical music world at that time parts of it were were not that audience driven there, there was a sense that you know classic fm came along and uh, actually people felt find it, find it quite unnerving uh, very quickly you know, it had uh, five and a half, six million listeners. So there clearly was a, a, a link uh, with the audiences there. And it was a, a product that could be created that they, they wanted to, to con consume and to listen to and to be part of as a brand because it got bigger and bigger. And I think we started talking to people who were, at that time used to write classical music books and they would sort of say to you, well, they need to be written in this style and they need these things in there. And it used to take me so long to say to them, well, no, I didn't want that in there. And we, we don't play that sort of music. And actually our listeners tell us, they really don't like that. And if you talk to them like that, they will just turn off on page one. So in the end, we said, look, let's just write them ourselves. It's just easier. And that was the honest reason why I started writing books, and I quite liked it. So I then, I enjoyed it. And obviously, when I came to the Arts Council, there was an opportunity just to widen out that, where a lot of my books have been, uh, you know, and under no circumstances when I say my books have any academic potentials at all. They are not works of great literature. They are very, have been very consumer-facing easy to read and easy to navigate guides to classical music. But there was an opportunity to do some work around more public policy areas. So uh, uh, that, that's been quite important. In fact, uh, right now, so, so, so my, my, my latest book will be called The Arts Dividend uh, Revisited. Uh, and that is a book that uh, actually I go back four years. So I wrote a book called The Arts Dividend, talking about my first year at the Arts Council. Uh, obviously I've been there for four more years now. Uh, and I've got a lot more experiences and the world has moved on. Uh, and so I've written what is actually quite expanded, probably twice the length, which goes back to some of those things I talked about before, but really makes the case as to why it's so important that we have sustained and strategic investment uh, in publicly funded arts and culture in this country. It's really, really important. And that's the case that I'm making in that book. Now you as Darren, 
What do you like to do when you are not working? Does that ever happen? Do you have any downtime? I'm tending one of those people who doesn't like to be too bored. So I do have a season ticket to Gillingham Football Club. So I go and uh, I go and uh, see Gillingham. I obviously see friends and family and uh, and do things like that. I, I mean, I, my my weeks are quite busy, and I do spend quite a lot of my life sitting on a train, zooming around parts of the country, and, and I spend quite a lot of my life in Premier Inns uh, around the country. So I, I'm a, I wake up and, and see a purple room, and I know I feel like I'm at home. But uh, no, I, I, I try and do other things as well. But I'm really lucky because also as part of my job, clearly, I spend evenings and weekends going to see really interesting, amazing things. So, you know, I can't complain about that. It's fantastic. I'm, I'm, it's part of what I'm expected to do. I mean, what a, what a privilege that is. And can you recommend us a podcast, a book, maybe one of your books, whatever you want to recommend to us? If you have anybody in your life who needs the case be made for them as to why an arts council exists, why it's important that government uh, puts money into arts and culture, why uh, a big chunk of the good causes money from the National Lottery goes into artists and arts organisations and museums and libraries. Now, I would say this, wouldn't I? But uh, my book, The Arts Dividend Revisited, I hope makes that case. And I, I hope it wouldn't be just a book for those of us who already know this stuff anyway. It's there to actually show other people what it does. And I think the, the, the ultimate reason for doing that is because we know that it really, really does benefit people's lives. There are these amazing dividends in people's lives. Having creativity around you is amazing. The education possibilities from having a creative education and having uh, the arts in your education is, is extremely strong. We know how artists and cultural institutions, and sometimes they can be buildings and sometimes they can be organizations and sometimes they can just be people can really change things in a community and can, and can build that and we look at you know you look at the UK and you look at what is a relatively small island and you think about the extent to which we are known around around the world on the international stage for our creativity and our creative industries and all of that coming together that reputational story there's loads and loads of amazing reasons why actually the more investment we have into arts and culture the more we can make that happen in more places for more people. Now, three questions to bring your podcast to an end. What mistake or mistakes do you often see organizations making in our industry that you feel we need to reevaluate ourselves? I think we always need to challenge ourselves, with me in this as well, to make sure we're not just talking to ourselves. We know just how great the stuff that we create, whatever part of, uh, of our world that we're creating stuff in, how great it is but we need to make sure we go out and engage other people in that. We don't just sit in an echo chamber. I think it's really, really important we do that because uh, the, 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 the case is made so much more strongly by people who are not directly involved in making, uh, 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 working in the industry. It's when we have those audiences, when we have people caring about what we do, that, that's what we need to do more. And we just need to keep all the time going out and talking to more people about what we do, telling them that story and getting them involved. What piece of advice would you give to someone in the beginning of their career wanting to be in a leadership role such as yours one day? Have a go at everything. Look around for people who you think do their job really well and copy them. If you find people who you think don't do their job very well, don't do what they do. And describe the ideal top leader in our industry in three words. Creative, approachable and imaginative. Thank you so much. It was so inspiring and so refreshing chatting to you today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you, Darren. Thank you. And thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed my conversation with Darren as much as I have. And I will never forget this. You are never too important to make the tea. 
If you have any feedback or would like to share your learnings with us, please email info at culturalenterprises.org.uk. We would love to hear from you. The Cultural Enterprises podcast is available on all of your favorite streaming platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Subscribe today and never miss a show. And join me next time as I chat to another top sector leader. See you then.